This is episode number 719 with Dr. Margot Gerritsen, Professor Emerita at Stanford University and Executive Director of Women in Data Science. Today's episode is brought to you by the Zerve Data Science Dev Environment, by Gurobi, the Decision Intelligence Leader, and by ODSC, the Open Data Science Conference. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast, the most listened to podcast in the data science industry. Each week, we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. I'm your host, John Crone. Thanks for joining me today. And now, let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. Today, we've got the extremely intelligent and super delightful Dr. Margot Gerritsen on the show. Margot has been faculty at Stanford University for more than 20 years, including eight years as director of the Institute for Computational and Mathematical Engineering. In 2015, she co-founded Women in Data Science, or WIDS for short. It's an organization that supports, inspires, and lowers barriers to entry for women across over 200 chapters in over 160 countries worldwide. She hosts the corresponding Women in Data Science podcast, and she holds a PhD from Stanford in which she focused on computational fluid dynamics, a passion she has retained throughout her academic career. Today's episode should appeal to anyone. In it, Margot details what computational mathematics is and how computational math is used to study fluid dynamics with fascinating in-depth examples across traffic, water, oil, sailing, F1 racing, the flight of pterodactyls, and more. She also talks about synesthesia, a rare perceptual phenomenon, which in her case means she sees numbers in specific colors and how this relates to her lifelong interest in math. And she fills us in on the genesis of her Women in Data Science organization and the impressive breadth of its global impact today. All right, you ready for this breathtaking episode? Let's go. Margo, welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. It's my first time with you as a guest on the show. You were last on the show just before I became host. So welcome back. Where in the world are you calling in from today? I'm in Oregon uh, right now. So I moved up from uh, the Bay Area where I spent uh, how many years? 26 years of my life. And I've now uh, been in Oregon uh, for three years. It's wonderful. We're just east of the Cascades in beautiful Bend. Mm, yeah, I used to have Intel as a client. So I was in Oregon frequently. And wow, it is a beautiful part of the United States, of the world. It's I can see why you'd pick that as a place to live. Um, so let's dive right into our uh, topics here. So you're a professor emerita at Stanford University, where you have fascinating research, the confluence of computational mathematics and environmental health and many other exciting applications. So first off, what is computational mathematics and how is that related to data science? Yeah, uh, computational mathematics is my big love after my husband and my son <laughs> and, and, and my, my dogs. Um, so I all, I was always fascinated when I was uh, when I was a kid and then later as a student on how I can use mathematics to better understand the world around me and particularly physical processes. Uh, I, I was a 
huge, huge fan of fluid, fluid dynamics uh, ever since I was a kid. How do sea currents flow? What drives them? Can we predict them? What about air flows? What happens underneath the ground? You name it. You know, I wanted to understand and explain. Now, in computational mathematics, we do that translation and we allow that exploration. So think about, for, for me anyway, this is, this is a, well, just one side of computational mathematics. It's simulation. Uh, and in simulation, what we do is we take what we know to be the laws governing a, a physical phenomenon, like, for example, a flow, and we translate that in, into a computer code that we can then use to build a virtual laboratory of that same process. Um, so computational, because we're doing... <laughs> Tons and tons of computations. You know, we're working on the computer um, and and mathematics because that translation step requires, uh, you know, a lot of mathematical tools. Um, the field of numerical analysis comes in. The field of linear algebra comes in. And then, of course, uh, once we've done the translation, you become... Uh, both a data scientist and a uh, computer scientist. A computer scientist because you have to run those models, and those models can be very large. Uh, we ran models, for example, of Monterey Bay. Monterey Bay is a is a large bay in uh, in uh, California, and to run a model that can really help predict relatively small scale flow phenomena, we needed to run for weeks and weeks on end on a very, very large computer. So obviously you need to be a pretty decent coder because if you're not a very experienced coder, then the programs that you're running will not be very efficient. So computer science comes in. You need to understand the systems on which you're running it as well. And then data comes in uh, for two reasons. One is a lot of these models are really data-driven, meaning that you need data in order to run the models. Think about simulating a part of the ocean. Well, when you simulate a part of the ocean, clearly you're creating boundaries. You cut the ocean off somewhere. And of course, you need to understand what's happening at these boundaries to drive your model. Otherwise, nothing interesting will happen. So there's a lot of data there. You need data to validate uh, your code as well. And then uh, you generate a lot of data. So I always say that I came into data science uh, not so much because I was using tons and tons of data to help drive my models data came in for sure, but because I was producing, <laughs> I don't know how many bytes, you know, whether I should uh, think about terabytes or, or, or petabytes or even more um, of data in the simulation itself. Makes perfect sense. Yeah. So when in computational mathematics, uh, what other kinds of, I mean, maybe it would help me kind of understand the area, if you also explain some applications other than like fluid dynamics, but let's stick with the fluid dynamics um, application for a moment. So I can kind of say back to you my understanding of what computational math means. So with fluid dynamics, you want to be modeling how some fluid is flowing. And I think that could mean not just liquids, but like air system, like like how oh, yeah. the air yeah, can be yeah, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Anything that flows. In fact, uh, you know, of course, computational mathematics is used a lot for solid mechanics as well. Right? So for, for any substance that that may move or break or fracture, um, so you know, computational mathematics plays a massive role in, in earthquake uh, dynamics, for example, mm. earthquake prediction modeling. Um, 
but 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 computational mathematics is used to to help understand any physical process and also engineering processes and also human decisions. Here's another example. Computational mathematics is used to simulate the stock market, to help mm. predict the stock market, when to buy, when to sell, what sort of put, you know, put options to put on, you name it. So that's, that's uh, they sometimes call people like that quants that are u- looking at, at uh, financial um you know, quantitative finance, and those are also computational mathematicians. There's a lot of math behind it. There are computational mathematicians looking at behavior of people. So behavioral analysis, anything that is done in the world that uh, in which you're using mathematics to translate or uh, describe uh, a behavior, a system, um, computational mathematics comes in. There are models where people just say, here are the beautiful mathematical equations that you can use uh, to represent this phenomenon. And then they leave it at that and they start analyzing just the the pure mathematics. And they do not try to put that then on a computer. But as soon as you start putting it on a computer and you're using the computer to help gain more insights, to optimize, to simulate, uh, to predict. Uh, And that's done through a a code, a computer code. It becomes computational mathematics. And then everything you do to prepare for that is also under computational mathematics. So the translation of the physics to the math, of the math to the computer code, and every single step in that last process as well. You know how you how you do the translation from mathematics to computer code, um, and uh, and then how you implement it on the computer. We all see that uh, to be part of computational mathematics. In fact, computational mathematics claims a lot because I would say that computational mathematics or computational science and engineering, as some people like to refer to it as well, uh, includes data science includes AI. Because in data science and AI, we're doing exactly that, right? We're we're interested in solving a problem. We're interested in predicting something out. We're interested in making a decision. And we're using computer algorithms in order to help us in this. Well, that's computational mathematics. There's always a ton of mathematics behind that. Yeah. So it sounds like, like I was kind of trying to think of computational mathematics as something relatively constrained where I was trying to think about like, okay, like maybe this is a field where like that idea of translation is something that's obviously very important. You mentioned that several times where this idea of translating mathematical equations, maybe of physical processes or behavioral processes into computer code. And then it sounds like something very frequently in computational mathematics is that you can end up generating a ton of data. Yes, yes, we do. In fact, there is a treasure trove out there, John, of data. Um, we you know there, there's a treasure trove of data that was observed, you know, has been observed over the past and has never been looked at. So that's the interesting part of it. And sometimes colleagues discover and then gain more insights from it. I remember one of my colleagues at Stanford finding these old aerial photographs of Antarctica and and now having the digital tools to really look at them and and digest them. 
But there is this enormous treasure trove of data that has been generated over the last decades by computational mathematics that we haven't looked at yet. And I've uh, certainly put some of that data in, in that treasure trove. I mentioned earlier Monterey Bay, the simulations. Well, these simulations really generate four-dimensional data, three dimensions in space, one dimensions in time. And by, at the time we generated this, and this is now nearly 20 years ago, over 20 years ago, I think, we did not have the data analysis tools, nor the compute power or the memory to easily get into the data, get our hands dirty, so to say, and really understand what the data was telling us. So use the data to actually visualize what was happening. So we would look at the data just in slices to say, hey, let's Let's put a vertical slice in this Monterey Bay and look at what's happening in that slice or horizontal slice. Or, but all that data is still there to be explored. And I'm sure there are many, many things that we could discover now if we went back and, and looked at this. The same with the, I don't know how many bytes produced by companies like Boeing or by institutes like NASA or national laboratories that are sitting there in, in massive memory storage systems and have never really been fully uh, assessed. But now with data mining tools, data analysis tools, we could. So it's kind of exciting when you think it's like, wow, there's all this unexplored, it's like a, a frontier that we, <laughs> that we can still go and explore. That's fascinating. And you're also a delight to listen to speak about these things. Like it's, yeah, I don't know. It, <laughs> between your Dutch accent and your kind of your beautiful visualizations of everything you're saying, like I, I'm completely like in rapture. Oh, that is not how I look at a Dutch accent. Oh, this is very funny. I moved, I moved away from Holland when I was uh, 24. And, you know, I, I, I had high school English at the time, but it, it's really too late to sort of reshape your jaw and reshape the way you speak. <laughs> you know, it's sort of baked in, right, this Dutch accent. We do so yeah, much yeah. from the throat and in the back of our, our mouth and, and so little at the front. And, of course, American English particularly is so much is in the front of your mouth. So that accent I could never get rid of. Uh, but most of the time when I hear myself, I think, oh, that darn Dutch accent, you know. <laughs> no, no, I wouldn't change it at all. I think it's great. But yeah, and even more so, you know, for this field of data science that obviously I'm really into and our listeners are really into, the way that you describe it with such color and excitement and opportunity, um, which, yeah, you know, we I think a lot of us see that all the time, but we can get so down in the nitty gritty sometimes that... Uh, it's, uh, you know, we kind of lose sight of the beauty of the whole thing. And we do have some more on, uh, on, on the beauty that you see in math coming later in the episode. Um, but uh, for now, let's dig into some of your research projects. So our understanding from our research is that things like traffic congestion and emissions simulation are something that are pretty big for you right now. Yeah, I, I went in that, uh, in that, into that area in the last few years, um, got really fascinated by traffic flow. Again, it's it's things that flow. And there are so many interesting decisions and optimization problems around traffic flow. Uh, in the Bay Area, where I was spending all my time, uh, as, as you probably can imagine, there is tremendous traffic congestion. Um, there's also, of course, traffic-related emissions and pollution. And questions come up as, 
you know, how to design a system in a really heavily populated area like the Bay Area that alleviates traffic congestion for everyone, not just for the people who can afford to use fast lanes or who can afford to have electric cars so they can access have access to carpool lanes, um, or those people that can actually afford to have a carpool, period, because that's not always there for everyone. Right? That, that can only happen if you can be... Uh, slightly flexible with the time that you leave or arrive, um, or if you have colleagues in you know that that leave from the same place and 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 go to the same office or the same work location, um, and that's just really not available to, to everyone. So I got really interested in in that, and and I, I mentioned earlier that I'm interested in this translation from mathematical equations that describe a phenomena to the computer. Well, with traffic flow, you can do this also. You can look at equations. We call them partial differential equations for traffic flow and then translate. Um, and then, you know, when I, when I started looking at this to say, oh, what's the state of the art in this? Uh, every time you start digging into an area, there are some some questions that you that you have for yourself. Say, oh, could I do that faster? Could I do this better? Could I add a little complexity? Could I make it more realistic? And so, a student uh, of mine, Nadim Saad, and I got very excited, and and we started digging into that. Um, now, the, the the ultimate motivation was because of work that we've been doing for Sonoma County. Sonoma County is a county just north of San Francisco. And it's a really interesting county to look at. Um, it's got uh, wealthy people. It also has some pretty poor people. It has a lot of uh, people, the immigrants who uh, came into the country to help with construction, to help in the wine industry, for example, very low income. Um, uh, also a lot of uh, what we call Ill illegal immigrants uh, then. And um, there is, uh, and they tend to live also in the areas where there is most of the traffic pollution, and they tend to be excluded from uh, some of these traffic uh, mitigation measures that are being put in. So um, we wanted to see, you know, where was the equity in in what people were doing there? Could we help out? Would it be a really good uh, maybe example for um, example co county for other counties? Uh, we got interested in clean car for all programs um, around the United States, including clean cars for all in California and, and looked at equity in, in, in that space. So again, it started with this fascination for things that flow. <laughs> that's, uh, that's probably the, the theme of my research life. Uh, and, and it started to include so much more. Um, and, and we build a, a little team uh, around it. Uh, it was also really fascinating for me to end up doing that because I really started my career at Stanford, not before that. I was in New Zealand for five years before coming back to Stanford as a professor. But at Stanford, I started my career in a, in a department that was then called petroleum engineering. And I looked at flows too, but subsurface uh, for oil and gas flows. And a lot of people listening to this may, may think, oh, what? You did what? You worked uh, in oil and gas and may, may think that going, you know, full circle and actually end up thinking about emissions uh, is, is an interesting uh, trajectory. Um, but anyway, uh, again, it was it was mostly because I was interested in, in flow and, and over time. 
as you know, as I was working as a computational mathematician and as a Stanford uh, professor, um, I got very, very interested in the human impact of the work that we do, in in the human impact of engineering and the impact on societies of data science, um, and 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 all of computational mathematics. And so, um, it's been an, it's been a fascinating transition. Tired of hearing about citizen data scientists? Fed up with enterprise salespeople peddling overpriced, mouse-driven data science tools? Have you ever wanted an application that lets you explore your data with code without having to switch environments from notebooks to IDEs? Want to use the cloud without having to become a DevOps engineer? Now you can have it all with Zerve, the world's first data science development environment that was designed for coders to do visual interactive data analysis and produce production-stable code. Start building in Zerve for free at Zerve.ai. That's Z-E-R-V-E dot A-I. Yeah, and, you know, I can see how people might get a knee-jerk reaction that's negative when you hear about kind of oil and gas research. And But, I mean, it's historically, and even still today, this is where the vast majority of our energy comes from. And I'm, you know, I'm sure I, a lot of our listeners and you as well, you know, we were excited about a future where that is no longer the case and we're moving in that direction. But, you know, still today that we have energy needs. um, Oil and and gas has made uh, us here in the United States, in Europe, you know, the the developed world uh, as we are, you know, without oil and gas and the very high density of energy that 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 it gives us we wouldn't have been able to develop so much that we have in transportation in healthcare in education you name it so we've definitely built our modern society on it and i'm very grateful that we had this because otherwise i think we would have been uh, not as far but <laughs> and there's a very large but we've had the technology to transition a long time ago Right. And we we haven't put a priority on that, and that's not good. Um, when I was working in in oil and gas, and and transitioned from ocean flows, air flows to flows uh, below the subsurface, I was attracted for several reasons. One was because the department at Stanford that offered me this this new position uh, had a has. And, and certainly had there a fantastic team of, of professors and students, really incredible uh, place to work, very supportive place. And, 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 and that's always, of course, wonderful to find an academic home uh, that can truly be a home. So that was, that was great. Um, the, the science questions that were still open and are, a lot of them are still open and outstanding for subsurface flow, which is not just oil and gas, but it's, for example, also water. So you can apply a lot of what I did to uh, subsurface water, reservoirs, aquifers, uh, uh, and so on, are fascinating, very, very complex mathematics, very nonlinear. So part of, you know, my my uh, math brain was drawn into this saying, oh, I thought Turbulent flow in the ocean was as complicated as it would get. <laughs> but then I discovered subsurface flow, and particularly flow that involves different phases liquids, gases, solids, and they're all interacting with each other in rock with 
with super, super, super small pores. I mean, fascinating, fascinating stuff. Really interesting math, really interesting translation from math to the computer. And then the third thing was that I immediately started working on, in areas of oil and gas that I really hoped and thought would help mitigate some of the most harmful impacts of oil and gas production. Um, and that was with enhanced oil recovery that was in situ. Um, so a lot of the uh, oil recovery, particularly of sticky oil, we call it heavy oil that is a little bit hard to get out, is done by what we call thermal stimulation. So what you do is you heat up the oil. And that makes sense, right? I mean, if you have a, a really sticky substance, say, cold honey <laughs> that you want to pour on your pancake what do you do right. to make it run easy right you heat it right. up a little bit right you yeah. put it above a steam or you some people now put it in the microwave i wouldn't do that but anyway you you try to <laughs> you try to heat it up so the same with the sticky oil but the way that it was uh, in the past and still uh, heated was by burning fossil fuels at the surface, creating mm. steam, for example, and putting that steam in the reservoir um, to 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 heat and and make make this gooey stuff flow more easily. So I started working on on systems where you can create that steam in situ, so not at the surface. You don't have to burn fossil fuels at the surface. You can do it underground. Um, the the everything uh, the products that you're creating because of the combustion can stay underground and is much better for the environment. Uh, so I thought that was very useful, and and with some of those technologies you can you can compute how many equivalent uh, how many Prius equivalents that is that is something that we looked at saying if we can change. <laughs> This reservoir <laughs> production <laughs> from from the traditional way to this this other way. This is the equivalent in terms of combustion um, savings, uh, you know, in 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 uh, in in Prius units as we call them now. Now probably maybe it's <laughs> Tesla know, units. I, I yeah. was going to make that joke. That's funny. That <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Super cool. I actually wasn't aware of. Um, subterranean oil and gas flows existing. I kind of, in my mind, I imagine them as static. Uh, but of course, yeah, they're liquids, and so yeah, you you gotta you gotta get that stuff out, right? That is the whole thing, and so you do that. But as if you're uh, sucking on a big straw, um, uh, right? You're pumping so it it up. But the thing is that uh, the well from which you're pumping is, of course, only very local. These wells are not very big. They're maybe six or eight inches across. And so you're only touching a little part of that reservoir. So you start mm. sucking, if, you, if I'm allowed to say that, sucking these uh, <laughs> the, the oil and gas out. And, of course, then oil and gas from elsewhere will start flowing to the well, right? You're creating a flow within that reservoir. Now it's a very slow flow. It doesn't doesn't go very fast. The volumes are very large, so that's why you can produce quite a bit. Um, but these these this oil and the gases and often there's also water in these reservoirs all start flowing towards these production wells in the most fascinating ways because they interact with each other. They have to flow through these minute pores in the rock. Most people, when they think about a reservoir, I think the visual they have in their head is some underground lake. 
I had a, a big sort of yeah. That's lake, exactly. Lake of oil yeah. gas. But yeah. it's not. I don't have a rock here with me. But imagine a rock that you pick up in your garden, you know, and and look at the open space in that rock. That's pore space, and that is where mm. this oil and gas sits. Uh, and so it flows through there, and these pores uh, are microns, right? They they may, you know, if you're lucky, you get bigger pores, maybe a millimeter or more than a millimeter but most of it is really small pore space so that yeah. stuff starts to flow through there it like i said it's it's very complex wow yeah i had no idea i just had this idea of kind of like an underground lake and you just yeah you just put a straw in it and <laughs> no that is you know that is, that is what a lot of people think also for aquifers of course with aquifers that's also not the case right it oh. also lives lives in in rocks right we don't have massive caverns underneath <laughs> the earth <laughs> filled with this stuff it's mostly oh. really small yeah you know i had, had no idea yeah. yeah um and yeah so that's really interesting so the so these liquids these uh subterranean liquids oil gas water they're not typically moving around is that right they're only moving kind of when we apply some pressure to them or, or, they're, or they're they... yeah they're moving anytime there is some sort of pressure so so a lot of these reservoirs are fluids are moving because there mm. are forces on them right so there there is uh, there, there may be pressure pressure changes in in the earth around them uh, you may be producing from a reservoir further away but that can be affecting um, uh, oil and gas and water uh, at, at huge distances, slowly, very slowly, but it happens. You have something that it, you have gravity acting on them too. So if you have um, uh, heavier and lighter fluids mixed in together, that over time, again, very, very slowly, the heavier stuff will sink and you know through those pores and the lighter stuff will will rise just like we have in the atmosphere but many 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 times slower so these processes are going on uh, absolutely and pressure changes in in uh, in reservoirs may be human induced it may be because of earth movements i mean there's many many uh, uh, ways to to imagine, uh, there are some places, for example, where you can see this in action at the surface too. Uh, those are seepage places. So for, I used to take my students uh, to a beach in Santa Barbara in California where oil was visibly seeping out of the ground. Not a human cost process, just a natural mm. process. We have mm. leakage through fractures in, in the earth as well. Um, again, fractures can be human uh, induced, uh, and and people talk about uh, fracking, right, as uh, as as a bad thing that it can in introduce fractures and can cause leakage into valuable parts of the subsurface, for example, aquifers, aquifers, um, and also leakage uh, to the surface. But there are a lot and a lot of natural fractures that are created by earth movements that. Um, and humans have absolutely no impact on it that cause uh, leakage and seepage. We have we have gases escaping the earth at times, um, and and this is well well known uh, as well. So it's not static. There's movement all the time, yeah. be it 
very slow <laughs> most of the time and sometimes a little faster and then uh, that's not always good think about volcanoes i mean when when you think about volcanic eruptions with lava ash gases escaping for a volcano these gases this lava all this stuff comes from the subsurface right and magma flows are just one example of uh, subterranean uh, flows what if you, as a data scientist, could not only inform decision-making, but also drive it? As a leader within your organization, imagine confidently harnessing provably optimal decisions. Garobi Optimization, the leader in decision intelligence technology, equips you to unlock the power of mathematical optimization and transform your organization. Trusted by 80% of the world's leading enterprises, Garobi's cutting-edge optimization solver, lightweight APIs, and flexible deployment ease the transition from data to decision. Visit garobi.com SDS to get exclusive access to a competition showcasing optimization's importance with prizes for top performers. That's G-U-R-O-B-I.com SDS. Wow, this is super wide opening for me. I'm realizing as we're talking that my knowledge of geology and any of these kinds of processes of these subterranean liquid flows, I, I didn't know any of this. And so hopefully this is also uh, really interesting uh, news for our listeners as well. Um, so um, something that's occurred to me a number of times as we've been talking here is you talk about fluid dynamics is how when we model weather, this is also the similar kind of like fluid process. And I, I particularly started thinking about this when you were talking about, you know, kind of supercomputers running for weeks. And I was thinking about how I, it's my understanding that a lot of our world's supercomputers are tied up with this weather simulation problem that it's like, you know, to in order to be accurately able to predict weather changes up to even just a few days, that the amount of complexity of the fluid flows is so great that you have some of the world's biggest supercomputers doing those computations. Well, hey, let me let me rephrase this a little bit. I think a lot of a lot of really large computer systems were designed just to do that. Right. Okay, so so yes, it's not it's not as if the weather modelers come in and say, let me steal your computing time. Right. Uh, a lot of these systems were designed uh, particularly to solve these really complex problems. So you're absolutely right. Weather prediction is one of them. Of course, weather prediction it, it has enormous impacts on societies. I mean, if we can improve that, that's why we're constantly chasing improved weather prediction. It can make an enormous difference on, on people's livelihoods and people's comfort. Uh, just imagine if we were better at predicting um, tornadoes, uh, formation of tornadoes, better at even better than we are now predicting hurricane pathways uh, and so on um, and and it's not just air weather i i always uh, talk also about ocean weather because we we can certainly at coastlines be impacted by ocean weather is there a storm surge coming right is there a tsunami traveling through um uh, are there extra big waves? You know, is the swell in enormous? Should we worry about uh, impacts of you know wave erosion? Um, so all those things, you know, ocean weather and and uh, air atmospheric weather are both really important for for us. Impacts on agriculture, impacts on safety, uh, you name it, comfort. 
Um, so yes, we we uh, use enormous computer resources for that. Um, it, there used to be a time where I, <laughs> and I, I can't remember the whole, how long ago, where it was still more accurate to say in a weather prediction, oh, the weather tomorrow is going to be the same as today. You had a, a higher chance of being right than believing the actual weather prediction. But I think we're past this now. Uh, weather prediction is notoriously difficult in some areas of, of the world, uh, particularly around big mountain range, ranges, at uh, the conflict confluence of, of, uh, of, of places where there's often this confluence of high pressure, low pressure systems. You know, it's, it's tough work, this prediction, but we are much better than we were when I first started in, in this field. The other area that, of course, requires a, a tremendous amount of compute power, too, is climate modeling. So this is weather in the long run, sort of averaged weather patterns, right? And so you can imagine that if weather forecasting requires a lot of compute power, climate forecasting uh, requires uh, even more. Now, the scale at which you do climate modeling and the scale at which you do weather modeling is a little different, right? In weather modeling, we want much more resolution. Um, in climate model modeling, we cannot afford that resolution just yet because then we would really be extraordinarily expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, so now other areas in computational mathematics that, that take an enormous amount of compute power is, of course, social media-related data science. It's it's searching on internet engines. It's recommender systems. It's things like uh, large uh, natural language processing, large language models. Uh, take a lot of uh, a lot of work. It's optimization and running of our electric. Uh, electricity systems, our grid systems. It's optimizing and running uh, stock uh, predictions, you know, stock market analysis. Um, you know about Bitcoin, which is a variant of that. I mean, there are uh, many, many systems that require a lot of time. It's design of certain um, uh, products. Think about uh, the compute power that is needed to Uh, help optimize the design of new airplanes, of cars. Um, There are uh, many yachts. Yachts, of course. That's a particular (laughs) interest for you, isn't it? It used to be, yeah. When I lived in New Zealand, after my my PhD, I I went to the United States for graduate school. And then after my PhD, I moved to New Zealand, which, by the way, was a natural progression for me because I grew up in Zealand. The old New Zealand. <laughs> the old Zealand. <laughs> the old Zealand. Uh, and Abel Tasman, who named New Zealand, was from that same area back in Holland. So that's hence the name New Zealand. So I always told my parents, there's a national progression. I'm moving to New Zealand. <laughs> um, but when I was in New Zealand, I ended up working on coastal ocean flow because New Zealand is you know, an island and has, I think, 14,000 kilometers of coastline. So coastal ocean flow, super interesting. Estuary flow, really important. Auckland, by far the largest city in New Zealand is right at in between two uh, coastal ocean systems, a large estuary and then and then um, the Pacific side, uh, also which creates lots of interesting shallow water, 
you know, uh, flows on, on the continental shelf, pretty shallow. And on the other end is an estuary and then the Tasman Sea, which, which is also pretty wild. So worked on coastal ocean flows for a bit uh, because that's where the interest was in New Zealand and also on yachting. Because New Zealand is pretty darn amazing as a country in sailing. A lot of very, very good sailors come from there. And there is this race called the America's Cup that uh, New Zealand has won uh, several times. Australia too. United States also, I, I must admit. Uh, but I got really interested with some of my students in the flow past sails. So how would you design sails on... A, a competitive yacht used in the America's Cup so that you could go faster. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and that was fascinating. I did in my PhD a little work on airflows, particularly for uh, wing design. I didn't do wing design myself, but I worked on codes that could be used by wing designers. Uh, and and sails are a bit like wings, but much more interesting because at that time sails were pretty elastic, you know, pretty flexible, and and of course we're moving around a lot nowadays in the America's Cup. For those of you listening who have watched the races over time, uh, the the sails have really been replaced by vertical wings. And there's there's much more rigidity to them than before. So they, you know, the 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 aerodynamics involved with that, the computational mathematics involved with that, is much closer to what I used to know. But I started working on sales for a while, and uh, one of my former students, uh, Steve Colley, is still a uh, member of Team New Zealand. He also worked for a couple of other challenges, but he's. He's been back at Team New Zealand for a long time, and he's one of the main designers there. And that's just, mm. just it's terrific. Um, the uh, if, I don't know if you saw this, but uh, the sail design that uh, I worked on for a while also led me to the craziest project I've ever worked on in my whole life. And that was uh, designing a wing, but the wing of a pterodactyl, <laughs> a pterosaur, <laughs> uh, which funnily enough looked a bit like a seal. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, it's it, that was an, a very interesting sort of segue for me in in my research. What was the what was the practical application of designing a pterodactyl wing? Uh, well, seemingly very, <laughs> very little, right? When you when you think about this, I mean, why would you try to create? And that was what this project was about: a flying replica of a pterosaur that lived 150 million years ago. Uh, now, from a from a science point of view, it's fascinating. You know, can we understand? the way that these pterosaurs and the, and the pterodactyl in particular that we were looking at, uh, can we understand the ways that it, that it flew, that it hunted, that it fed itself um, using the fossil record and using knowledge that we have about bird flight, bat flight, and also human flight? Uh, so that was a fascinating question. And, and the interesting thing for me was to really think about the wings of these pterosaurs that were <clears throat> a little different than, than birds. You know, they don't have feathers. They have a membrane. So it's a membrane wing, which is a little bit like 
a sail on a sailing boat, but of course horizontal most of the time instead of vertical. Um, and though know, these these pterosaurs were really uh, in, in, and I'm quoting an aero <coughs> astro professor that helped me on this project. Pterosaurs were really badly designed airplanes, so it seemed. You know, they they must have been very unstable flyers. They had massive heads, you know, big, bulky things sticking out in front of the wings. That is not how you design an airplane for nice, stable flight. And so what that meant that if they really did fly, as we think they did, they must have been able to control <coughs> their flight very, very fast, responding to, you know, instabilities. Uh, a gust would come and push that big head of their sideways. They're going to wobble. They need to be able to correct themselves very fast. And we found evidence. We, I'm, I'm, I'm using we now for paleontologists, paleontologists that study this, uh, or we for humans as a whole, not our research team. Uh, but evidence was found of blood flow to the wings, which seemed to indicate that there were muscular um, abilities in that wing uh, for maybe very fast wing shape control. And that was fascinating because then, of course, you start asking yourself the question, can we learn something from that? Can we mimic that now? And could it perhaps have insights that we could apply to remote control airplanes that we could maybe apply to smart wings in the design of airplanes maybe things that could make air wings more energy efficient you know so that we we wouldn't need as much thrust in order to stay up in the air or to move fast so all these questions came up um, but it's a slow process, you know, it's not, uh, sometimes people think uh, that uh, new insights sort of, sort of happen instantaneously or very fast, but often it takes many, many years to derive insights that are that are practical. So I'm, I'm, I would say that maybe we contributed a little bit, but we certainly didn't contribute uh, as much as that we, we've seen any changes in the way that we're designing. But it was fascinating fascinating nevertheless and we worked on this with national geographic they created the documentary uh, called mm. sky monsters that mm. feature features our engineering team yeah so if if anyone listening want want to buy a now very cheap dvd <laughs> uh, on on amazon uh, sky monsters is the name and you can see the efforts of the engineering team and the paleontologists also involved with us in creating this replica and you can see plenty failures um uh which is great and you can see me in 2005 yeah <laughs> so cool it's been, yeah it's, it's interesting yeah be where our data-centric future comes to life at ODSC West 2023 from October 30th to November 2nd. Join thousands of experts and professionals in person or virtually as they all converge and learn the latest in deep learning, large language models, natural language processing, generative AI, and other topics driving our dynamic field. Network with fellow AI pros, invest in yourself in their wide range of training, talks, and workshops, and unleash your potential at the leading machine learning conference. 
Open data science conferences are often the highlight of my year. I always have an incredible time. We filmed many super data science episodes there, and now you can use the code super at checkout and you'll get an additional 15% off your pass at odsc.com. Uh, yeah, I'm so glad that I asked the pterodactyl question. I thought I was, you know, I, 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 I didn't know that it was going to lead to such a fascinating answer and to a documentary that I'll be sure to include in the show notes. And so people can dig into that more and see more of that story. So cool, Margo. Um, so with all of these advances in computational methods, does it mean that we don't need like real world wind tunnels as much as before? I don't think we'll ever get to a phase where we can truly 100% trust the computer simulations to reflect reality completely. So I think in design of airplanes, in design of cars or anything else that we're designing, design of bridges, you know, things that for which we need to be very safe. Um, ultimately, you want to test in the wind tunnel, you want to test prototypes, of course, as well, and not just rely on the computer model to say, oh, this design will work great. Just go and take off with a bunch of people in it, right? Who who needs uh, wind tunnel testing? Who needs prototype testing? But what it has enabled us to do and will maybe do so, more so in, in the future also is significantly reduce the number of prototypes that we have to test. So see computational simulation uh, as a way to, um, to sift through all these different designs that you may have and come up with the most likely to succeed designs before you then test them in the wind tunnels. In, before that, you had to, you know, if you had different design ideas, you, you wanted to test them all because you couldn't test them any other way. Now we can say, oh, here are a gazillion different design ideas. Let's test them first in, in, uh, in the computer simulation, find out which ones are most likely to be the best, the optimal designs, pick a number of them and do wind tunnel testing on that. So mm-hmm. we've we've definitely seen a replacement in that sense, you know, from many tests to fewer, uh, more tailored. Uh, and, and, and it's interesting how experimental work and computational work can interplay, right? So mm-hmm. we can use simulations to help understand what we really should be testing experimentally. Experiments are used to help us write better simulators, right? So there is a two-way flow. And, and sometimes, you know, computations can be used to design better experimental systems. So it's a really interesting interplay. And I've been very lucky to have worked a bit on that interface too, doing experiments as well as doing simulations and finding the interaction between them. That's so cool. Do you follow F1 racing at all by chance? I'm not a fan. My sister is a is a is a big fan. Of course, I have to as a as a Dutch person. I have to <laughs> <laughs> really follow it with such a, a great Dutch rider, um, uh, or driver. What do you say, driver? Yeah. I suppose driver. Yeah, um, Max Verstappen. Yeah, yeah, Max Verstappen. So, the, um, 
Yeah, he's is great. Uh, I do know, and I have worked with people who are now in F1 racing and in in design. Um, at Stanford, we built at some point uh, a massive wall of um, you know visualization wall of high resolution terminals all, all sort of coupled together. And one of my colleagues who did work on Formula One racing used the wall that we designed to look at improvements in, um, in the design of, uh, of the car shape. And, and that was phenomenal to, to, to watch that. I, I worked with a, a postdoctoral student who uh, later started working for Formula One racing team. And I'm really excited that several very big name um, uh, designers and data analysts for F1 teams are women. McLaren oh. and Mercedes teams both have women. Yeah. Oh, that's really cool. You should have them on your podcast. Yeah. I would love to. Do you know them? <laughs> <laughs> uh, not personally. We've been in touch because we've invited them to uh, Women in Data Science. and uh, 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 But they're all connected in this fascinating sister organization uh, of women in sports analytics. And so they're F1 uh, folks there, there are people uh, looking at baseball statistics, um, uh, ba- basketball, you know, soccer, you name it, um, American football also. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'll follow up with you after the episode to get those names. Uh, I would love to have yeah. uh, something from F1. I've started to really get into it recently, uh, like many people through the Netflix series Drive to Survive, but now I follow it as well. And there's, Amazing there's series, right? Amazing really series at series. Netflix. Yeah. So, who's your Must... favorite driver? Yeah, Lewis Hamilton. Oh, um, no, no, okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. No, I, I don't actually, I don't like Max Verstappen very much. I mean, obviously, you would, you're Dutch, and I see all the Dutch flags at his races. Uh, yeah, I, I see that. I don't know. He's, he, um, yeah, he drives so aggressively and dangerously, and it, I, it, it, yeah. So it's an interesting. Like he, he has this fearless way of driving, that is, you know, that's one part of his success. But then the other part of his success, and this is kind of what I want to get into with with respect to fluid dynamics and airflow, is that uh, so there were many years in a row. I can't remember exactly now how many, but something like six years in a row, Lewis Hamilton and Mercedes won the F one championship. Um, except for like, there was like one year where Lewis Hamilton didn't win because his teammate won by just a couple of points. Um, and so Mercedes had this in, in kind of the modern can, there was some major car change like 10 years ago and Mercedes had won every single year, um, until three years ago, three seasons ago. Um, and uh, there was this. There was a season where it was like very close. So Max Verstappen and Red Bull, they were able to be very close to Mercedes, and it just kind of very controversially in the final race, uh, Max Verstappen won the drivers' championship, but Mercedes still retained uh, two seasons ago the uh, the constructors' championship. So that um, so, but then this season and last season. Uh, Mercedes has really been struggling and it's related to it's 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 this flow dynamics thing so the car the way that they, they did this overhaul so for people who don't watch F1 um, periodically F1 releases 
vastly different rules for how the car needs to be designed. So every constructor, so whether you're a Red Bull or Mercedes or McLaren, every season you design a brand new car. And sometimes season over season, the regulations don't change that much. But between uh, two, like between last season and the season before, there was this major change. And uh, the, the, you don't actually get to test the cars on a track until until like just before the season starts and everyone gets the same amount of time to do it even for wind tunnel simulators you get very there's strict limitations on exactly how much time you get to spend in a wind tunnel and so you have to take big calculated risks i'm suspecting now after this conversation we had that the that it's this kind of modeling this computational mathematics is critical because that there's no limitation on so you can i imagine i'm just guessing all this now and you can probably corroborate (laughs) but you spend tons of time designing the the car in a computer simulation and then having the flows run over it to try to simulate how it would work and so the big thing that is allowed uh well that has brought mercedes down and and has allowed red bull to dominate now this current season as well as the preceding season is that mercedes had something they did a design that according to the simulations and i think maybe even in the wind tunnels looked incredible and it was something that had never been done before but in practice, on the track, Lewis Hamilton's car, as well as his teammate's car, did this porpoising. So mm. it's bouncing up and down. Uh, and it's yeah. not going over bumps, but it's related to the way that the airflows are. And obviously, this yeah. is super inefficient. If your car is bouncing up and down, like uh, Lewis Hamilton was having back problems from how much the car was shaking. And obviously, yeah. it slows your forward motion if so much yeah. of your energy is going yeah, into the up and down. Exactly, it saps your energy. Yeah, this is this is such a you know it's unfortunate for them, uh, and 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 at the same time, it's a great example of of why it is so tricky to design those systems. Those are those are very complex flows, and um, there are many phenomena that take place around these cars in the flow that that are not easy to predict at all and are very sensitive to small perturbations. We call it nonlinear flows, you know, that that if there's a small little change somewhere, um, uh, a new behavior or a different behavior, uh, modified behavior can be created um, that can, can have these impacts. And so, um, yeah, I remember my colleague looking at the design of a mirror. They found some drag on the car in a new design that they were working on and they couldn't explain this increased drag. And they started running all these simulations to try to understand understand it. So a lot of data, right? A lot of data to visualize. And, and people are so much better at seeing things and noticing things and identifying things when they look at it rather than when they stare at the, at the, at the spreadsheets and tables of numbers, right? Mm-hmm. You, you got to mm-hmm. see it to, to really understand it. And so in this visualization that was much more detailed on that very large system that we built, uh, they could actually find the, the reason for this. And it was a, a different mirror placement that caused this and they had not seen that before they could actually look at that detailed flow so there is so much to it you you maybe these computer simulations had some signature of this bouncing effect in it but clearly they didn't spot it um well enough and it could also very well be that you know you can never set up a system that is exactly the way it is on a racetrack 
right? right because right, right. putting something in a wind tunnel it is not the same as raising the actual thing. You know, you don't right. get the same sort of temperature uh, profiles around the car. You know, when you're actually racing and you have that friction of the wheels with the road, I mean, everything changes also because of that. So there are always going to be differences between your wind tunnel testing, your numerical, or sorry, I should say computational simulations and reality. And this is unfortunate and, and also not really surprising in these very complex systems, changing rules like this and expecting teams with these very complex systems and very sensitive systems to respond to this well is, in my opinion, a little crazy and shouldn't really necessarily <laughs> be done because you can imagine right. that if you don't give them enough time and such changes are put in, it could be very dangerous. To, right. to drivers too, right? So mm. they, they do the same in the America's Cup, by the way. Every challenge, there are new rules oh. and there is this whole oh. rule book around which you have to design. Yeah, so it's it's not just Formula One that does this. Yeah. Cool. I, I didn't know that about the America's Cup. And yeah, that's really fascinating. Uh, I hadn't thought about the safety concern. To me, I was thinking, well, you know, this is obviously very challenging for the constructors, the that are designing the F1 cars um, every year, especially if you don't have the big budget. So there's a, you know, a few teams like Ferrari, yeah. McLaren, uh, yeah, Ferrari, McLaren, Mercedes, Red Bull, they have much bigger budgets than yeah. other teams. And so it's very, you know, like the, some, yeah. you know, some of the teams probably can't afford computational yeah. mathematics. It's, uh, it's, so a, it's a, a rich person's sport, right? You need incredible capital in F1. You need incredible capital also in the America's Cup for those same reasons. Very, very expensive campaigns. And, uh, and sometimes uh, it, it's, it's interesting. It's fascinating because every single time they're pushing the boundaries of what they can and cannot do, right? And so from mm-hmm. an engineering perspective, a science perspective, it's fascinating. And you see some of these design changes, of course, then penetrate in 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 systems built for us normal people. You can see this right. with SIL design, right? So a lot of the America's Cup designs over time found themselves into the, the design of regular boats, if you like, you know, the way that sails were were molded, um, the shape of the sails, you see that trickle through. Um, you see the same with the hydrofoils at the America's Cup. Now you can start seeing hydrofoils everywhere because this whole knowledge about hydrofoils and how to behave uh, grew so much. And of course, with Formula One racing, you have a lot of designs over time that have trickled into designs of regular passenger cars. But yeah, it's. Uh, I think what 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 you see in those systems is that that they're now at a point those cars where this this systems are so complex and so narrowly optimized <laughs> that uh, even a relatively benign looking design change can really throw people off. Mm-hmm. And since these cars are driving so incredibly fast and these drivers are exposed uh, to so many forces, oh, mm-hmm. it may not be um, 
yeah, it may not be super safe. So, but I, I'm sure they're thinking about this. I'm glad that nothing bad happened with that bouncing. That that bouncing wasn't, you know, resonating out of control. Um, maybe no, it could never right. happen because I don't understand what cause what causes it. Um, and and I'm sorry that uh, that there are injuries in, involved with it. Right? It's not great. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I hadn't thought about the safety component of it, but it does make it interesting. These like these constant rule changes. It means that because the constructing teams need to take big gambles, and so yeah, so Mercedes was dominant for a long time, and it's kind of it's nice to see now some competition. You know, uh, Ferrari, McLaren, and a Red Bull, uh, but Red Bull in particular. Like I mean, Red Bull is just it's crazy how how dominant they are this season in particular. Uh, Max Verstappen at the time of recording, he had just crossed the most consecutive. F1 races one yeah. of all time. Uh, yeah. I think he's on a yeah, I should, I should, should have worn some orange today. <laughs> do I have any orange? Yeah, I don't yeah. have any orange. <laughs> well, and I do, I do love Dutch sport. So I was in, um, I was in the Netherlands for, I was in Amsterdam for the uh, world cup final uh, against Spain. Uh, however many years ago that is now. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, 12 years ago, I guess, something like that. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, so fascinating. And it's also it's the the design element that you talked about there with these changes to America's Cup boats, to F1 cars coming into the real world. Uh, a cool thing that's happening uh, that I'm aware of in F1 is that they are also dealing with these kinds of climate issues. Because obviously F1 cars, they are, there is Formula E, which I don't really watch, but it's, uh, but it's something that other, I, I guess is something you watch that's so electric kind of the electric equivalent of F1 racing, but even in F1 racing, they're moving towards having, um, the, the sources of fuel be sustainable or renewable, um, which is interesting. So that's coming, yeah. some of the rule changes coming in, in, in upcoming years. Yeah. And if they can design really, really efficient engines with better fuels, that can really help. Of course, we're we're really now at the cusp of, you know, the the era of the electric car. Yes. <laughs> right. And uh, looking at uh, changes in in solid state batteries and so on, I'm, I'm I'm quite optimistic. Yeah. Very cool time. Um. So yeah. So an, amongst your research projects, is there anything else that we haven't discussed? That you're really excited about, like upcoming projects or collaborations that you'd like to tell us about, or have we kind of covered <laughs> a yeah, lot of what's going I, on? I think we're good. We we talked about the craziest project. We talked about my love for fluids. I I think we're uh, probably saturated. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Great. So then let's move on to your passion for math in general and teaching. Um, so you have videos on YouTube that have millions of views. So you have a TEDx talk called The Beauty I See in Algebra, uh, as well as a video called Mathematics Gives You Wings. And I mean, these are unbelievably popular. I'm looking up at the time of recording, the Mathematics Gives You Wings lecture, uh, which was published by Stanford. It has 1.2 million views. And the Beauty I See in Algebra talk, uh, yeah, quarter of a million views. So I mean, exceptionally popular uh, videos. You're obviously very gifted, as our listeners, are, I'm sure, are already aware, having listened to you for the last hour, that you are amazing at being able to uh, 
uh, to articulate uh, mathematics, data science in such a beautiful way. Um, but uh, what is it in particular about algebra and linear algebra that you find so fascinating? Yeah, my, uh, my love for math really started really early on. You know, I, even as a, as a kid in elementary school, I liked manipulating numbers. I'm one of, the, one of these people that um, mix numbers with colors. And um, I, there's a name for it, and it always escapes me. But that made me the fact that numbers and colors in my mind were, were combined as a, as a young girl really interested in manipulation of them. It was just a fun game for me to play. Um, yeah, that's that's and, uh, synesthesia. Yeah. Synesthesia, that's it. That's the word, yeah. yeah. Um, and and I think that, that, that really drove my fascination uh, when I was young with, with math manipulation. To me, um, there seems to be this, this other language out there and and that was the language of numbers and the language of colors for me and and I tried to understand it um but as as I was growing up and being exposed to more and more math I started seeing mathematics as this fantastic language uh really the way I studied English and French and a little bit of German was no different in my mind than the way I studied mathematics um there are all these concepts in mathematics you know they're numbers they're matrices they're vectors they're they're entities that you can manipulate according to certain laws so it's like words and grammar you've got concepts and mathematical algebra you know how do you there's this thing called multiplication you can manipulate two numbers by multiplying them it's it, it's it's a rule that that opens up in my mind, uh, at the time anyway, this this sort of language or game, if you like, of of playing with mathematical entities, and I just found it entirely fascinating. Um, as I was, you know, continuing in my math education, um, I started realizing that that some parts of mathematics were really everywhere. Like I, like I say in my linear algebra talk, linear algebra is at the base of almost everything that we do in computational mathematics, is at the base of much of data science, is at the base of, of, of all simulation. Um, and, and so I really wanted to understand those connections. And it was incredible to me that so many different applications that I've worked in also, you know, from, from airflow to subservice flow to traffic flow modeling to other aspects of data science that I've worked on the Terrasaur <laughs> um, uh, replication, that they all had that common base language uh, of linear algebra. And, and when I first came to the United States and started studying at Stanford University under an amazing professor called Gene Gallup, he used to say this. He said, oh, ultimately, all engineering is linear algebra. And, and I've become to, to believe that. So it's, it's, it's like having this universal language for so much in science and engineering. And then being able to translate physics and engineering processes and human processes into that language, ah, just mind-boggling to me. So 
Uh, and then, of course, you you see that you know I had some natural ability, not a huge amount. I don't think I'm a, a genius at all, not at all when it comes to mathematics. But I had some innate ability, and then worked on improving my skills in that area. And and as I was doing that, I saw so many people around me give up on mathematics or saying, you know, we we just don't get it. Or uh, and I started realizing that it has much, much more to do with the way that we were teaching and the way that we were explaining than with people's ability to actually grow to understand this. Most people can learn a new language. Um, You don't see many people say, I just cannot do another language. They may say, I'm not as good at it, or it takes me a long time. But people tend to accept and know that if you apply yourself enough, you can speak okay. You may have a strong accent, like a Dutch accent, but you know you can make yourself understood. You can read, you can comprehend um, the spoken word. But with math, there's still so many people who believe that that is really one of those things you just have or you don't have. And I've never believed it, and I've always been on a quest to show this and help people um, really discover their ability to learn and improve over time uh, in this beautiful language. That also opens up so many doors. So, you know, I ended up studying mathematics ultimately because as a teenager, you know, started thinking in high school about what I would like to like to be. And I was fascinated with weather, so I thought, oh, maybe I should be a weather forecaster. Uh, but I was fascinated with bird flight as well, so I thought, maybe I should be an ornithologist. And then I was fascinated by by the Earth, and so maybe I should be a geophysicist. Um, and then other friends of mine were, were inter- starting to get interested in finance, and I thought, oh, that sounds pretty fun too. And I was interested in biology, and there were so many different things, and I thought, wait a second, I don't really want to choose How can I keep doors open to all these areas? And I found this math as this base language of so much of what we do in science and engineering to be the ticket. So I thought, if I study mathematics and then computational mathematics, I can go and work on whatever I like. And when I look back on my career, that's exactly (laughs) what I've done. (laughs) But I've I've gone through so many of those doors, and so it's it's been fascinating. So clearly, I love it. I think it is fascinating. I think it allows access to so much other work. It's very empowering to scientists and engineers to understand math. And... We see a lot of people struggle with this. And I believe a lot of that has to do with some myths about really needing that innate ability. And if you don't have it, just forget about it. So people give up early. Um, And also about teaching that is really not very optimal. So I've enjoyed over time in my career to try to explain concepts in a way that's more intuitive that um, that explains the usability, the power of the mathematics. And, and I'm happy if that has resonated with some people. That mathematics gives you wings talk, by the way. That was an interesting story. 
uh, it was a uh, almost an impromptu talk at Stanford. I didn't even realize at the time they were taping it. They were going to put it out on video. Uh, I'd almost forgotten about it. It was reunion weekend, homecoming weekend at Stanford, and the football game was starting big football game. I was going to go to this football game, but just before the game, I checked my email and there was this reminder say, Hey, Marco, you're supposed to give uh, a lecture for homecoming weekend. This was a homecoming weekend lecture called a class without a quiz. And I almost forgot. And so I went in a little bit um, unprepared and I literally winked that talk so um (laughs) (laughs) but then they taped it and i didn't even realize they taped it and then my son i think it was a year later he was uh, looking for something online for his math class he was in in uh was it 2000 yeah he was in middle school i think at the time and he says mom we needed to find a video in math and i found you and said what video did you find and he said i found mathematics and gives you wings so you have two hundred fifty thousand views i said what <laughs> <laughs> so that was a surprise um so that's a, an older video um and uh, the, the responses to that video have also been very interesting. Hey, and, and uh, now I, I'm joined by my little doggy here. So if you can hear, <laughs> hello, hey, Millie. I know she's getting very impatient with me, I'm sure. <laughs> well, we are, we are, we're getting near the end of the interview. So Millie will be able to have her walk soon. Um, so yeah, so really fascinating section there on your math and teaching passion. Of course, we'll link to both those videos, uh, The Beauty I See in Algebra and Math Gives You Wings in the show notes. And yeah, the synesthesia thing is fascinating to me. I don't know if I've ever had a conversation with someone who is a synesthete. And uh, so just to kind of give us a taste to make this crystal clear for people. And you actually, you do often see that people who are synesthetes are especially good at math because it's easier for you to, to, to see numbers, to distinguish them, uh, I guess some people can even kind of do the operations. Like you kind of just think, oh, like yellow and blue makes red, it, you know? Like- yeah. So I used to do math like this. And I think what has helped, what helped me having this affliction or whatever you call it is when I was really young and first started being introduced to numbers. So first grade, um, second grade, it helped me get better at math because I could see the numbers uh, in colors. And I did indeed do manipulations like this. Four times five was 20. That was a color combination that was just ingrained in me. And I remember times tables based on colors. Um, it also, you know, it, it, fascinating things. That there's some numbers I really, really dislike because they're associated with, <laughs> with colors I really don't like. I mean, there's there's some numbers associated with brownish colors. They're very unattractive. And so oh. I avoid them in my life. You know, I, I don't really want to ever to live um, at a place with number 17, for example. That's just, that's just oh, a brown. Oh, my that's goodness. It's a, a brown Wait, so number. I was imagining that it was always individual number, like indiv- like a single digit. It was associated with a specific color, but you just said 17. Yeah, for me, it's, uh, yeah. So there, of course, there are patterns. Like I tend to have a 
preference for even numbers. Um, I also associate them with roundness. It, you know, if you look at them visually, a lot of even mm -hmm. numbers are roundish in eight, two, um, mm -hmm. where some of the odd numbers are much sharper in presence, a seven, a one. Mm -hmm. Right now, a nine, of course, is also round, but a nine happens to be sort of ochre color uh, for me, and I, I don't like it as much. Um, <laughs> but anyway, the, these, yeah, so the color um combinations I, I really like numbers that are um powers for example even though it's odd i absolutely love the number 27 that's three times three times three right so that's that's just fascinating um and three is a nice number to me uh, so and it's associated with colors i also associated i'm sorry to say numbers with people so I have favorite people in my life. <laughs> and I would, oh, I would say, that person is a 27. My husband is a 27. It's a really good number. <laughs> uh, so it's a, it's a little weird. Um, and I don't talk about it all, all that often. Mm -hmm. But for, so, so it doesn't help me now. And it, and it hasn't helped me much apart from having this weird association uh, it hasn't helped me what much probably since third grade, but it helped me in the very first starts to be better at number manipulations, at my times tables. I I felt good about this. I was one of the better kids in class. I was a little competitive, um, and it it got me on that train, that math train, because I never felt as a young kid I cannot do this. I have a hard time with number manipulations. I never felt it because up to, say, manipulations of two-digit numbers, you know, as you do maybe up to third grade or second grade, it was easy for me. It was just a color spectrum. Mm -hmm. And sometimes mm -hmm. people, right? Sometimes in, in, with timetables, I would associate the people. So I would say, so, oh, four times five, that is Pete times Jane, right? Um, because I had associated four and five with particular people, <laughs> and I could imagine they would produce something called a 20. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so interesting. Uh, yeah, so I've learned a lot about synesthesia here today. Um, so just out of curiosity, I mean, how about just three and 27, what colors do you associate with those numbers? So three is a is a spectrum. Three is one of the colors that for spectrum. me has, a, has has more of a rainbow. I mean, some of oh, the the wow. nicer numbers. So as a young, you know, when I first started noticing this, there were some numbers that I loved so much. Um, they didn't have just one flavor. They had this whole spectrum, very bright primary colors. So three is one of those. 27, as a result, is also that very bright, very vivid Um and then, like I said, there are some, some other numbers. Four is a red, you know, uh, five is a blue. And don't ask me why. There is no rhyme or reason to this. And, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. also, everyone uh, that has this uh, thinks about it differently. You know, there are exactly. different color associations. Sometimes people yeah. think that all of us, us <laughs> in this group, have the same color associations with the same yeah. numbers. Uh -uh. You know, it's completely varied and some people associate people with colors and like I do some not just numbers or numbers with people or 
or or you know some people pull in smells as well and they have mm -hmm. uh, 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 some sort of visual connections too um for me visual uh connections have always been very important you know there are there, uh, when I teach, I'm very well aware that there are students that, that are very visual learners. They really need to see some picture, some sort of representation before they can understand it. Um, uh, other people are, are very comfortable just being verbal. So they can see a formula, they can see words, and, and they can associate with that just, just fine. I've always been very visual in everything, and, and, and that probably also stems from this, because early on it was all about what I mm -hmm. saw mm -hmm. in, in my mind. Yeah. And, and so the key thing here for our listeners to make crystal clear is that this isn't something that Margot taught herself. This isn't like an association where you say, oh, you know, I'm going to learn that four is red and three is this brilliant multicolor. It's that you from, I guess, as long as you can remember from childhood, you just you've always it's printed in black on the page. But you always saw that four is red. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it is very, I think it came up with numbers so much because numbers are so visible. It is just this one thing. Words are a little bit more confusing at times. There are many letters. There are so many different combinations. But I also have these associations with some words, you know, the early words that I used to learn. So the words that you start reading for the first time, right, the, these these little kids' books. I don't know, in, in French, it was papa fume une pipe, you know, uh, dad smokes a pipe. That was the first sentence I learned. Um, in English, the first sentence I learned was Keith is in the garden. No, so uh, in Dutch you of course have this too. So you and and all those words, the first words you learn, maybe a couple of hundred words, they have color associations for me, because at the time I was doing that with with those words too. They tend to be smaller words, right? Shorter words, so it wasn't as confusing. Of course, as my vocabulary increased and my reading ability increased, I had to give up because you just can't, <laughs> you can't do that, right? With yeah, yeah. The, millions of combinations that you have with words yeah, yeah, yeah. at least i yeah. couldn't i know i know people yeah. that that can associate colors with with language as well yeah yeah fascinating uh and i would love to keep going on and on about that but we have a very important topic that we need to get into before millie can get outside so this is the women in data science group that you started eight years ago so you co-founded this and as impressive as your academic career is, and that's obviously what we focused on in this episode, it's Women in Data Science, WIDS, uh, which has grown now into a huge global movement. So you now serve as the executive director of WIDS. And uh, yeah, so what sparked the idea and what have been your big learnings uh, from this initiative? Oh, what sparked the idea was frustration. <laughs> it's a great incentive. Uh, you know, it's a great driver often. So I've been in, in this field of computational mathematics and in STEM for many decades now. And uh, data science, uh, which has become sort of very recognized and very important and critical field because it's penetrating so much in, in our societies, um, had, in as it started, and, and, and certainly by the time we, at the time we started WIDS, um, had just like other STEM field, very low percentage of women um, represented in in the in the the people 
asking the questions, to people finding the solutions, to people uh, designing the algorithms. And also, uh, very, very few people, uh, very, very few women were made visible in, in data science. Very few women on the podium at the big uh, conferences, very few women on podcasts, very few women instructors online, very few women experts asked to chime in on panels and so on. So not only were women underrepresented, but the amazing women that were in the field were really not made visible. And when in 2015, there was yet another conference, in fact, one uh, in the Bay Area, Uh, that only had male speakers. And um, the reason they gave me when I asked them about this was that they had asked me to come and I couldn't make it. So what was I expecting? Um, And they just couldn't find out any other women. I thought, together with two colleagues at Stanford, that this was just not acceptable for a critical field like data science, in particularly unacceptable and really bad for everyone to not have women in there and not have women visible um, and, and to have this culture where women are really also uh, not included as, 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 as easily as, uh, as men. Uh, and of course, uh, we're now talking binary, women and men, but there are other genders that, that, uh, that are, of course, even more excluded than, than women. And so we decided on a whim and that one morning after I heard about this conference not having any women speakers uh, because I couldn't uh, be there, uh, we decided just put on a conference. This was 2015. said, let's just put on a conference. Let's call it Women in Data Science. Let's do it on Stanford campus. And we're just going to create a podium for these amazing women that we do know to give them more visibility and start what I still refer to as project visibility. Let's make the outstanding women doing all this amazing work and making all these contributions visible. Let's normalize the presence of women in this field so that girls and women feel that they belong so that boys and men don't question the presence of women. Of course, women do this stuff. Of course, I can collaborate with women. Absolutely equal uh, in all regards. So we started that just as this one conference. And then we hit a nerve at that time. Other people started saying, hey, we'd like to do something like that too. We decided to organize an umbrella of women in data science under which other people in their own region um, with their own local role models, their own women they wanted to highlight, the own voices they wanted to emphasize, um, could organize under our umbrella as a women in data science ambassador and a women in data science event. And then before we realized it, you know, by 2017, 2018, 19, we had a lot of those events around the world. And we started sort of organically creating this community of women through that. But we were only doing events. And so we decided, and we is myself, I was at Stanford at the time, running an institute under which WITS was organized. Um, And I had a fantastic staff member, uh, Karen Matthies, and another staff member that we hired to help out with this distributed model with the ambassadors and the regional events. So the three of us, as co-leads of WITS, decided to add year-round programming. So we gradually started growing. We added a podcast, so we're now in our sixth season of our WITS podcast. 
so wonderful uh, women that we uh, that we interview there, and then and you get to meet the women behind the science in those podcasts. So a lot of the conversations are personal, like in your podcast. Um, we added an annual data fund. This is a global data fund, which is a low barrier. Uh, for a lot of people, first experience with data. Uh, and we, we work on fascinating problems uh, around social good topics. Um, so our, for our new data fund, by the way, is going to be launched pretty soon. Uh, we added workshops as skill sharing for women in the field. A lot of women saying, hey, we love this community. We want to share our skills. Said, come in, give a workshop. So now we have Wednesday workshops. We like the W in WIDS. Um, <laughs> we end, ended up having a next generation program for outreach because when you think about the barriers that women experience or the reason why so many women do not enter the field, there are, there's a plethora of those reasons. But certainly a lot of those come up and rear their ugly heads early on in elementary school, in middle school, and high school. So we really wanted to go back um, down to these levels of education and see if we can remove some of these myths, get people interested in this field, uh, do advocacy for it, raise awareness, and, and, and see if, if we can get students to consider this, right? And to not say, oh, that's just not for me. So, mm -hmm. yeah, here we are. Last year, uh, we decided to spin off WITS from Stanford. So we'd been under Stanford for, for, for a long time. And we became so large that it was time for us to spin off. It was the natural thing to do. And with great support from Stanford and with Stanford remaining as partner, we are now a nonprofit. We just launched our brand new website with new logo and everything with hundreds and hundreds of videos that are nicely curated, lots of events that people can explore um, and, and lots of interesting information. And that's at witsworldwide.org, witsworldwide, one, one word, W-I-D-S, worldwide.org. So I hope people will check it out. Oh yeah, we'll be sure to include that in the show notes. It's fantastic, and both all so eight years ago that you co-founded Wids, uh, the conference is now enormous. And I also you so you co-chair the conference, and you have the conference going on globally around filming today's episode. Uh, yes. so you're like in, kind of in, yeah, as we speak, and right now, four minutes from now, we're starting our third broadcast of our five-hour program, and that's in, in the Americas. So we had three hours up uh, with several of my uh, team members through the night. To uh, I, did, I did get a, a little nap in, but uh, through the night in uh, APAC and EMEA, um, we pre-taped our five-hour conference, and so that made it a little bit easier. And no, I don't have to rush now, John, because we've got to so been up no. all night almost. And, yeah, it's all I'm, been pre-taped. I'm emceeing the conference, but every, everything was taped uh, a, a okay. while ago, so I can I can join a little bit later. Yeah, that's just fine. Well, uh, we, we, we won't want to hold you and Millie too much longer, but that, I mean, the conference is enormous. So it has over 100,000 participants worldwide from 175 countries, hence the, uh, the long hours because people are in all different time zones. Uh, attendees from Oregon, where you are now, to Tokyo, to Saudi Arabia. Uh, so fascinating to, you know, and amazing to have this success but yeah, clearly you you tapped into something 
that was badly needed. And, and I agree. I mean, it's, it's wild to think uh, that, you know, that you could go to a conference and there'd be only male speakers, this kind of thing. And it's getting better. It's getting better. And, you know, we are all, I have to do a big shout out to so many fantastic sister organizations that around that same time or afterwards or just before started up as well. We have Pi Ladies, Our Ladies, Women in Data USA, Women in Big Data, Women in Analytics, Black Women in AI. Uh, we have DAIR, a fantastic organization set up by Timnit Gibru and some of her friends. I mean, we there are so many, and I'm missing out, and I'm sorry if you're listening and you're running another uh, sister organization, I miss out on you, but we have Sisters of SAR, we have the, the Ladies of Lancet, you know, we've got sisters in, in sport analytics, you know, there are so many, and they're all doing fabulous jobs, and we want to collaborate with everyone. Um, so it raises the visibility of women, which is super helpful. Um, it raises awareness in, in women that they can this is a fascinating field, and yes, they do belong. And no, you don't need to be a computer nerd with a massive innate ability. Absolutely not. Most people that contribute in to this field and everywhere in STEM, by the way, are pretty ordinary learners. You know, we just learn and make mistakes and get better over time. And uh, and, and we just love uh, working in this field and, and love learning something new <laughs> but with every mistake we make. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing to me, Margo, that you're able to uh, recite all of those different organizations. That kind of like rote listing of things is something that I'm really terrible at. So uh, yeah, it's amazing that there are so many organizations and that you're able to uh, reel so many of them off. You know, and I, I forgot, you know, the one I forgot and I have to mention, I need to be, you know, I need to be is another organization, code.org, girls who code. Uh, oh, I mean, there are so many and they're all fabulous. So anyone listening who wants to help um, get women and other underrepresented minorities in this field uh, to the table and get them successful. You know, there is a place for you. Uh, there's an organization that you can associate yourself with, you can help out with. Certainly, you're welcome in WITS, very welcome. WITS, uh, a lot of our programming, all of our programming is done by women. There's women on the podium, women behind the mic, women on video, but it is for everyone. Uh, so all our programming is available to everyone at no cost. It just so happens that the content is delivered by women. And yeah, why not? Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, women are of part of this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and in addition to the conference, there is, of course, something that's probably going to be particularly of interest to our podcast listeners, is there's a WIDS, a Women in Data Science podcast, of course, as well. And so you host yes. that show. I think as of recently, you co-host that show. Yeah, we we have uh, Chisu Chis Lyons, who is a, a team member of uh, core team member of Wits Worldwide. She's our chief program director, and she is uh, joining. Uh, she has joined as a host. She's wonderful. She will uh, do most of the um, conversations with uh, industry professionals. And, and I will do everything else. That will allow us to have more regularity. As you know, John, um, 
you know, with a podcast, it's great to do it regular, to do it often. And with which so far we've had seasons. Every year we'd have a season with 10 to 12 podcasts. But you're going to see a lot more regular broadcasting of which podcasts uh, going forward, which we're really excited about. Nice. Yeah. And I'm sure our listeners are as well. Well, Margot, this has been such a fascinating episode. I've been gripped by your content and your beautiful accent, in my opinion, this entire time. Uh, yeah, just it's just yeah, such an incredible episode. I, I, I've learned so much. I mean, obviously, I learn a ton with guests on the show uh, all the time. But with you today, it was almost everything. Almost every topic we covered, I it was like completely uh, new new ground for me. Uh, and so thank you so much. I'm sure it's the same case for a lot of our listeners as well. And as I've already said a couple times on the show, the way you communicated it is, is masterful. Um, so thank you. Uh, before I let you go, and I know you're already aware of this, we, uh, because you've been on the show before, we always ask for a book recommendation. So I understand you might have a few for us. Yes, I, I can't resist. There is a, there's a few on different aspects of data science and, and also some women in data science. But the first book I wanted to highlight, and we had um, the authors of the book, Ivory Ross and Susan McSamon, actually at the conference now, so people can see the video. And that's this book here, Your Brain on Art, and there may be mirrored so you have to read it differently your brain on art by ivy ross and susan mcsamon who who give a lot of fantastic data-based evidence of how engaging in the arts even if it's just 10 minutes a day a little bit can really help uh, your brain function better also in stem and in data science it's fascinating. It's it's been proven, um, and and like I said, they give plenty data. Very scientific book in that sense, and it blew me away. Um, and this is one reason why I'm determined to spend more time on my banjo. Um, the <laughs> other, <laughs> the yeah, other book. Uh, uh, only yeah. a small portion of our listeners are doing it with the YouTube version, so there is. There's a banjo and a music stand right over Margot's shoulder, which nicely complements the guitar over my shoulder. <laughs> yes. uh, and there was a brief period where both of us, you know, we were both kind of off uh, getting ready uh, before the episode, but we both had our, our streams going. And I was, <laughs> it was kind of funny yeah, to get it's just a banjo funny. interviewing a guitar. Yeah. Uh, anyway, the other book that I wanted to mention is this book called The XX Edge. And that's written by uh, Patience Marine Ball and Ruth Schaber. Also, uh, yes, and XX being, of course, to the two chromosomes that's right. that lead to chromosome. a woman. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And they provide a lot of really interesting data and discussion of the impact that women can have on the financial sector and investing and risk management and how diverse teams uh, tend to do much better. Uh, what I like about this book also is that it's very scientific and very data-driven, so interesting. And then the last book I just wanted to highlight is a book on teaching of data science. Um, there is a, a part of data science that sounds very esoteric. It's topological data science. It uses 
topology, which for a lot of people is even more scary than algebra, and certainly was for me. But um, Colleen Ferrelli and and her co-author Jay Gaba have wrote this wonderful book called uh, The Shape of Data that explains Mm. how to use topology and network theory to do data science differently and and uh, and for I'm sure many people more intuitively. It's a lovely book. Uh, so anyway, those are my three shout outs. Those are fabulous recommendations and I'm I am going to immediately after we finish recording go and order the XX Edge for my sister who my younger sister who was a trader for many years at a bank and now does uh, ESG uh, uh, fund management um, yeah. type of work. And that sounds like just the perfect book for her. So yeah, these are exciting yes. uh, recommendations. Thank you. And yeah, very last thing before I let you go, obviously we know about the WIDS conference, the WIDS podcast. Are there other ways that our audience should be following you to, to keep up to the latest on your thoughts? Yeah, well, check out our website, witsworldwide.org. And and we are very active on LinkedIn as well. We have a very large group on LinkedIn. And so people can come in and connect. And we post a lot of stuff there. Um, So that's a great way. Um, If you're really interested in in joining us and helping, send me an email. I'm very easy to find. Just go to our website. You can find me. Um, we love new ambassadors. We love new connections to corporations. Uh, corporations can become corporate sponsors. Um, we love donations. We love it all, but we particularly <laughs> like your your active participation. Check out our datathon. Check out some of those podcasts. Get familiar with with the women in this field and the incredible work they do. Um, just at this conference, by the way, the uh, that we've uh, we're we're streaming right now as we speak. We're ten minutes in in uh, in the Americas. Um, there are yeah, amazing yeah. At women the, at the time of recording. <laughs> at the time at yeah, the time yeah. of recording, yeah. yeah. So so what that means is that you can now find it really easily. You can go to our YouTube channel, uh, find out Women in Data Science YouTube channel, where we have uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of videos, including all the videos of this uh, this conference. Um, yeah, the conference is opened, but just to give one example, I am so excited about everyone, but to give one example, it's opened by the head of data science of the World Bank. So that's something your sister would probably wow. also find fascinating. Oh, Her yeah. name is uh, Hashan Fu. She's dynamite, and she gives a wonderful opening address. Awesome. Uh, check it out for sure. Uh, regardless of your gender, it's going to be a fascinating conference, no doubt, to check out. Um, Margot, thank you so much again. I've already kind of profusely uh, <laughs> expressed how amazing an episode this was. So I'll just kind of end it here. Thank you so much again. And maybe in a few years, we can check in again and see how your journey is yes. yes. Yeah. And if you change your name to Joanna, we can have you on our WITS <laughs> podcast too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks, John. Uh, it was actually, wonderful to chat. I think I'd, I'd go with Joan so that I have a rhyming name. I'd be Joan Crone. <laughs> oh, look at that. That's it. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Thanks well, yeah. <laughs> thanks again, John. It was wonderful. Wow. 
Wow, what an eye-opening and fun conversation. In today's episode, Margot filled us in on how computational mathematics involves the translation of physics and math into computer code, typically resulting in terabytes or petabytes of data being generated in four dimensions. She talked about how fluid dynamics is a common application area for computational math, but it can also be applied to solids like earthquakes and tons of other phenomena, including human behavior, electrical grids, and engineering processes. She filled us in on how underground fluids are typically found within tiny micron-sized pores in rock, how pterodactyls had big heads that were not well-suited to flying, but the quick-reacting wing muscles they had to compensate for this have implications for airplane wing design. And she talked about how she co-founded WIDS as a reaction to a conference with only male speakers, and now their annual conference has over 100,000 participants in over 170 countries. As always, you can get all the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, the video recording, any materials mentioned on the show, the URLs from Margot's social media profiles, as well as my own, at superdatascience.com slash 719. Beyond social media, another way we can interact is coming up on November 8th, when I'll be hosting a virtual half-day conference on building commercially successful large language model applications. It'll be interactive, practical, and it'll feature some of the most influential people in the large natural language model space as speakers. It'll be live, in the O'Reilly platform, which many employers and universities provide access to. Otherwise, you can get a free 30-day trial of O'Reilly using our special code, SDSPOD23. We've got a link to that code ready for you in the show notes. All right, thanks to my colleagues at Nebula for supporting me while I create content like this Super Data Science episode for you. And thanks, of course, to Ivana, Mario, Natalie, Serge, Silvio, Zara, and Kirill on the Super Data Science team for producing another breathtaking episode for us today. You can support us by checking out our sponsors' links, by sharing, by reviewing, by subscribing. But most of all, I just hope you keep on tuning in. I'm so grateful to have you listening, and I hope I can continue to make episodes you love for years and years to come. Until next time, keep on rocking it out there, and I'm looking forward to enjoying another round of the Super Data Science Podcast with you very soon.